It's very good afternoon. It is Niall Boylan with you right to, to about two o'clock or so. Yeah, depending on how many calls we happen to receive and how many people want to get involved in the conversation because it is a conversation people try to avoid. And that is, of course, abortion or termination of pregnancy. And just to, you know, the interest of balance, we did ask many people from both sides of the debate to come on. But unfortunately, so many people weren't very forthcoming. And as you may or may not know, a review of Ireland's abortion legislation has recommended that the required three-day waiting period to access a termination should no longer be mandatory. Now, I want to get your calls on this at 085-100-2255. That's 085-100-2255. Not only is that up for review, but also up for review is conscientious objection because, of course, the Minister for Health believes that abortion is not or doesn't have the availability that it should have because so many doctors and nurses conscientiously object. That was in the legislation that we were promised way back in 2018 when the referendum happened that people could, if they wanted to, if they were in the profession, the medical profession, say, no, look, this goes against my morals, this goes against my religion, it goes against my beliefs, and I don't want to be involved, so I'll pass it on to somebody else. Indeed, they don't even have to pass it on to somebody else. And also up for review is the time limit, the 12-week time limit. Now, I've heard numerous campaigners suggesting anything from increasing it to 14 weeks, 22 weeks, and even one or two suggesting that there should be no time limit. In other words, you could have a termination the day before the baby is actually born which would be absolutely scandalous if it happened. Now, so many people have a view. So many people are split down the middle. But I have to say, in the last 10 years uh, that this conversation has been on the radio almost on a monthly basis, and particularly since the death, the tragic death of Savita Hanapanover, this particular debate has divided people literally down the middle. As you know, in the referendum, 67% of the voters voted in favour of Irish abortion laws. But they voted in favour of particular abortion laws. And even Leo Varadkar himself said he would be, I suppose, reluctant. And he actually said he would be uncomfortable to make any major legislative changes so soon after the referendum. But campaigners are making this an election issue. And they're saying, well, we want these changes. And if you don't give them to us, this could be a general election issue. And with the government heading towards a general election, this could be a big issue for the government. Well... I decided to get a few people on to talk to me today, and joining me today is Eilish Moroy, who's from the Pro-Life Campaign, and she joins me in the, well, not in the studio, but on Zoom. Eilish, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Niall. Thanks for having me on the programme. Eilish, firstly, I, I am going to take an opposing view to you to some degree, because we seem to have a huge problem in getting people, because I suppose since that referendum back in 2018, let's cast our minds back to that referendum day, I'm sure you were greatly disappointed because you've probably been campaigning uh, for the pro-life team, so to speak. And on that particular day, I'm sure you were greatly disappointed with the result. Were you surprised by the result? Well, I mean, given the way the debate uh, was carried on, um, not particularly surprised. There was a lot of misinformation around, I mean, you mentioned the death of, tragic death of Savita Halpanaver, um, and, you know, we know that there was a lot of misinformation around that tragedy. Um, I think there was a lot of people with personal stories um, that, you know, and that's had a big impact. Um, and I think a lot of this personal stories on the pro-life side, for example, women who had been through abortion who regret it, uh, women who, you know, really wanted support during unplanned pregnancy, uh, women who had babies with um, life-limiting conditions who were advised to abort, who didn't, who had misdiagnoses. These kind of stories didn't get out as much as one would have liked. Um, and I think, you know, I think one of the key things and one of the silver linings really around the three-year review of the abortion law that we're discussing now is that, you know, we get to talk about this issue a bit more. And I think in any democracy, no matter what the issue, it's really important to have that opportunity to talk about it. And the three-year review 
and the really extreme mm-hmm. recommendations that are outlined in it. We'll, 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 we'll come to those just in a moment, but going back, still going back to 2018, when you've seen the numerous debates on TV and on radio, and I'm sure you were involved in many of them, I think I may have spoken to myself on the radio on one or two occasions in relation to uh, that particular debate, but when you see you know, those cases of, say, women who had to go to the United Kingdom to have an abortion because they had been told that their baby was uh, not going to be born alive or had life-limiting conditions, or indeed their baby was already had passed away in the womb, and women had to go to the United Kingdom. There was one particular story which was quite harrowing where a woman went to the United Kingdom, had an abortion and her baby was then sent by DPD in a box back to her. I mean, those kind of stories, no matter whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, they really do get at the heartstrings, don't they? Absolutely. There's no question about that. And, you know, our heart goes out to anybody who's been through these really tough situations. I think, though, again, it's about hearing the other side of the story. Just in the last two weeks, I was contacted by a woman who was advised to go to England uh, to have an abortion of a baby because her baby had a life-limiting condition and she completely um, feels she was unsupported um, by doctors, that there was really only one path um, offered to her and wishes that somebody had offered her support. And we know many women who are part of the pro-life movement, part of the pro-life campaign, who were given those diagnoses, who didn't go ahead and whose babies didn't have the diagnosis or have the level of, of mm. disability that was suggested. Another thing to remember, I think, Niall, is that, you know, um, we have a great um, community in Ireland still. We have a great love of everybody in our community, no, mo- no matter what their ability. The reality is that many of those um, abortions that are still happening, there are still some people traveling um, because, um, traveling to England because their baby has been diagnosed with the, with um, a life-limiting condition. Many of those women who are traveling or, or families that are traveling, the babies are babies who are diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb. And I don't think that that's something that we as a society should be encouraging or welcoming. So it's important to remember that a large number of those who are traveling to England now, it's because of um, their babies being diagnosed with Down syndrome. And I think that the Real problem we this have is after now. the 12 week period, of course, because up That's to 12 right. weeks, there is no reason or you don't have to give a reason to have a termination in Ireland. Were you, when I say were you disappointed with the result, the 67%, which surprised me at the time, I really thought it was going to be split closer to the middle uh, than, than that, than 67%, because when I was on the radio at the time discussing it and we ran polls on a regular basis. Now, maybe, of course, my audience and my demographic would be a bit more conservative because it was an older demographic and a lot of them like me and I'm probably a bit conservative as well. So so maybe that was skewed slightly, but still we were seeing 80 to 90% on our particular polls disagreeing with Ireland's abortion laws. But what sold it to people was this idea that it was about, you know, fatal fetal abnormalities. It was about women who had been raped. It was about women whose lives were in danger. And those, as some people describe them red herrings, but I mean, they are real people, of course. You know, but do you believe those red herrings, inverted commas, is what really essentially sold the abortion debate? Well, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's, we're, it's five years ago now. It's in the past as to what happened then. And I think it's really important for us to talk about the future and common ground we can find. But mm-hmm. I do think that, um, yeah, I think that people, an awful lot of people who voted yes at the time, um, you know, they felt they were under the impression that women weren't getting medical treatment um, in, if their lives were in danger, which of course was was not true. Um, and, and, you know, but there was, un- there was uncertainty around that from doctor's point of view. I know they brought in uh, the bill, which was a year previous to that, after Savita's passing. Uh, they brought in legislation late at one or two o'clock in the morning. We remember that fiasco. Um, but in saying that, that legislation was meant to protect doctors, I suppose, as well, to make that decision. Because still to now, 
doctors are a little bit unclear when it goes past the 12 week period. And at that time, doctors were unclear at all as to whether they were allowed to perform a termination if the woman's life was in danger, unless they could get a second opinion, they could be 100% sure because it was a 14 year jail sentence hanging over their head if they didn't make the right decision. I think if you talk to a lot of doctors and a lot of people who are in obstetrics and gynecology, you would find that they had no problem treating women um, when their lives were in danger, because that wasn't a direct targeting of the life of the unborn child. That's what abortion is, when you directly uh, go and end the, end the life of the unborn child. In that case, they were treating the woman for whatever she needed to be treated for. And if the unborn child died as a, as a result of that, that wasn't abortion. And that was always allowed um, in in Irish medical practice. Um, and I think that in the Savita Halpanavra case, you, you know, you, the family sued the, the doctor for medical negligence in the hospital. It wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't sue the state. It wasn't mm. a, a, as a result of the laws. So that's kind of proof of that. But like, again, I think, Niall, it's really good for us to talk about the current situation. Okay, as you well, say, well, let, well, let's get to the current situation. And the, the, for, let's, let's break it down for us. The three-day waiting period, uh, which was put into the original legislation to give a woman time to think, I suppose. Um, the campaign for yes would have us believe this three-day waiting period, period is patronising to women, uh, that women are incapable of making a decision. And why make a woman, you know, in a decision that she doesn't make lightly, I'm sure, why make her wait another three days? Is that a fair point? Is that a fair argument? It's interesting. It's an interesting argument. I think the most interesting thing about the um, recommendation in the abortion review that the three-day wait be changed is that it's not based on any interviews or any research or any discussions with women who availed of the three-day wait, women who went for the first consultation for abortion and didn't go to the second one. So we know that because of parliamentary questions from TDs uh, to the Minister for Health, we know that there are 3,900, nearly 4,000 women didn't avail of the second appointment. Now, some of those women may have miscarried. Some of them may have been false pregnancy tests. But even allowing for those figures, you're still talking about thousands of women who availed of the three-day period of reflection. And their voices are completely excluded from this review, which is has made a big, you know, has... has so are you, are you saying they are women who went to the GP, said, listen, I'm thinking about having a termination of pregnancy. The doctors or GP said to them, listen... Have a little think about it. Come back to us in three days. We'll make the appointment for three days' time, uh, obviously, to have the termination or, or the, uh, the 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 pills or whatever it is, that would, depending on, of course, what sort of termination they're having. And those particular women in that reflection period changed their mind. Or as you said, they could have been miscarriage or they could have been a false pregnancy. But in saying that, you believe that it makes a difference. Uh, 100% makes a difference. And, um, you know, the thing is that in any area of life, when we're making a big decision, we encourage people to take time. And, and why wouldn't we encourage women to take some time? My daughter is a leaving cert. She has about three different opportunities to change her mind on her CAO form. And that's not an irreversible decision like abortion is. You can't change, you, you can't take it back. You can't reverse that decision. And there are people, and again, we, we hear from people and people have been in touch with us who have availed of, of that. And I really think it would be great, Niall, if you would, you know, ask one of those women to come onto your programme, a woman who's sitting, maybe listening to this programme with the baby in her arms, who availed of that three-day period of reflection. But a really interesting thing, and I think it's really important that we get this out there, is that their three-year review of the abortion law, um, when they were discussing and considering the issue of the three-day wait, the author didn't rely on the Department of Health figures doesn't seem to have been, I'm not sure if aware, I can't say, but certainly not in the report. There's no reference to the nearly 4,000 women who didn't avail of the second appointment. Instead, the author references 
a very small sample of a small number of women from 2019, uh, which was supplied to her from a, from a pro, pro-choice campaign. This, this, is, this is the barrister Marie O'Shea you're talking about, who, who subjected or submitted a report last month uh, to the Oireachtas Committee in relation to this. Um, she also talked about uh, conscientious objection. Now, this is one, of course, that Stephen Donnelly has brought up over the last month as well that we do have termination of pregnancy laws in this country. It is available. That is the law, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, the people voted that, and we have to accept democracy. Um, but he says the availability isn't good enough. In other words, there are so many places all over Ireland where there is no availability for women to get a termination of pregnancy, which he refers to as basic medical care, and you can't get it, and he said that has to change. And the reason it's happening is because of conscientious objection in most cases. So, I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, that if you're working in a medical profession, this, as far as the law is concerned now, is as female medical health care, and that you must uh, be involved or you must perform whatever needs to be performed because that is your job as a nurse or a doctor. Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, one of the arguments that we're hearing is that, you know, lack of access. We had the Ministry for Health uh, stated on RT Radio a few weeks ago that in 2022, there were eight and a half thousand abortions in Ireland. That's one in eight pregnancies being ended by abortion. They are massive figures. So the idea that people can't access abortion with those huge figures um, is simply just, it just doesn't, it, it's just not true. The second thing is, and, and Ireland is a small country, um, you know. But, but, is it, but is it fair that a woman who may have a fatal fetal abnormality, for example, or life-limiting condition, with a baby with a life-limiting condition, has to travel from Cork to Dublin or Galway to Dublin or, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, Sligo down to, to Navan or whatever it has to be, just to get basic health care? Well, first of all, I would, I would totally reject the fact that it's health care. And I think any of the doctors who are... Um, you know, uh, in their conscience, not getting involved in abortion would reject that too. It's direct ending of uh, human life. It's not based. In the cases that you're talking about, women would have to travel in, to, to Dublin in any event for the kind of situation you're talking about. But the reality is we have to remember why doctors and nurses entered the health services. For the, for the most part, they entered it, I mean, for all, mostly all of them, they entered it because they want to save lives and not end lives. Abortion is not evidence-based procedure. Many doctors um, don't want to be involved in it and there's a very good reason for them not to be involved in it. And I think some of the terminology in the three-year review report is very concerning. They talk about things like, um, you know, taking, bringing in a statutory, um, some sort of statutory measure to prevent doctors giving misinformation to patients, which might delay them accessing abortion. Does that mean that doctors can't talk to women about what supports they might be able to access or what parenting might be like. Um, that's very concerning language. I think freedom of conscience as a concept is an internationally recognised right um, in, in human rights instruments. And the idea that it would be eroded uh, further, um, it's already not good enough in the abortion legislation. Uh, it, there, there is a provision for it in the abortion legislation. It's already not strong enough. It doesn't extend to student doctors, for example. And, and I think any further erosion would be totally unacceptable. And I, I think would see a big reaction from doctors because there are very many doctors in this country, lots of them probably listening to this programme, who have no interest being involved in ending the life of human beings. They want to treat... And, and I get that. And, I, and by the way, you know, it is a very uncomfortable conversation in the sense that even those who voted yes, many of those who voted yes, actually probably the vast majority of people in this country, 
don't think abortion is a nice idea. Nobody wants to talk about it. The very idea that there's that kind of stigma to it suggests that we all believe there's something inherently wrong with it. But it is a decision that women make. Now, mind you, I'll be honest with you, after the referendum, when I saw the celebrations, uh, you know, in Dublin Castle, I found that very uncomfortable to watch people jumping up and down, smiling and laughing because we just voted in laws, you know, to terminate pregnancy, which is the most beautiful thing in the world. And what made me sit back a little bit was one of the campaigners I'd had on uh, during the campaign, um, it was a pro-choice campaigner. She was quite adamant that this was the right thing. She referred to pregnancy as a clump of cells on numerous occasions during the conversation, which made me very uncomfortable. And only about six months later, I noticed on her Facebook page, she had a picture of her scan. She had got pregnant, and I'm delighted for her, by the way, if she knows who I'm talking about. I'm absolutely delighted for her. I think her baby now is uh, four or five years old. Um, but when she put her scan up, her first scan, she said, a picture of my new baby. And I said, so it's not a clump of cells anymore. So I think it's once, and, and I got the impression during that whole campaign, if it's wanted, if it's a, it's a baby, but if it's not wanted, it's a clump of cells. And that made me very uncomfortable along with Dublin Castle. But the point, sorry, I was getting to and going around, going around in circles there too, was in relation to conscientious objection. You know, in all other industries, you can't really conscientiously object. I mean, for example, if you're a Muslim and you work in an off-license, if you're a Christian and you work in a pharmacy, you can't refuse to give contraceptives. You know, otherwise there's no point in you working there. You'd probably be out of a job. So what I'm saying is, in every other avenue of business, you can't really conscientiously object. They will say to you that you shouldn't be working in that industry because it's now part of that industry. I could understand if it was an old doctor uh, who never had to do things like that because it was never part of it. But realistically, in the last 10 years, you know, we knew this was coming. Most people knew this was coming. So any doctors, particularly younger doctors and nurses, surely can't conscientiously object now because they went, they went into an industry, if that's what you want to call healthcare, because it is an industry, knowing this is part of the industry, whether you like it or not. Well, I think a lot of people would disagree and they'd consider healthcare a vocation. I mean, I think we, we know how amazing our doctors and nurses were during the last few years. Um, I, think it's, I, think, I don't think it's something I could do. Uh, I think you have a, there's a very particular type of person and, and, and skills as well as empathy and, and other kind of um, traits that are needed. Um, I, I, I can't, you know, it's, it's really, um, when you consider why they entered healthcare, and I know the point you're making about younger doctors. I actually had a very troubling in conversation with somebody whose daughter wanted to be a midwife. Um, she was in Leaving Cert. And after the Eighth Amendment referendum passed, she told her mother, Mommy, I don't want to do that now because I don't want to be involved in ending babies' lives. So I think it's a real tragedy that there's people that we're going to be losing from the caring professions um, because of this really kind of strong um, kind of, you know, um, strong-handed approach that the government is taking and, and the terminology in the report. And if you look at the report, Niall, and I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to look at the section on this, they talk about uh, encouraging healthcare workers and doctors to engage in values clarifications workshop. I mean, it's reminiscent of re-education camps. The idea that we would have to bring in people and we have to teach them that actually, you know, ending life is, is healthcare. And this is the thing about these euphemistic terms around this. It's a direct ending of the, un, the, the life of an unborn child. And, and I understand I understand why you feel like that. And I would feel the same way as you from a moral point of view. But realistically, when we talk about, you know, re-evaluation or retraining, I suppose most jobs you have upskilling or you you've different aspects to any job that changes on a regular basis. So you have to retrain people and that would go in healthcare as well, where you have new diagnostic equipment or whatever it happens to be that people have to be educated and reskilled into new ways of performing operations, new forms of healthcare. I, I know you're not referring to it as healthcare, but I do understand why they would have to reskill people. I understand the point that you're making too, because 
you can't morally change somebody's mind or you can't tell somebody how to think. And that's what you're suggesting they're trying to do. Well, yeah, I mean, values clarifications workshops, which is the term used in the report, would suggest it's about trying to change your ideology uh, and, you know, and change you from being a person who doesn't want to we're be seeing that in, in We're seeing that in so many aspects of life at the moment where people are being told how to think. Well, that's so, right. And it, it, that's really concerning. And, you know, I also think it's important to remember we're not just talking about doctors and nurses here. We're talking about the healthcare assistants. We're talking about the hospital reporters. We're talking about people across the healthcare sector. Who, do, who should be protected and shouldn't have to be involved in ending of life. It's a, it's a very basic freedom. But going back to the report now, like there's so many other things in the report that, that, that there's a lot missing from the report. So we have these kind of things like the three day wait and the, the erosion, further erosion of freedom of conscience. But the report, you know, was meant to look at other aspects of the, of the law as well and has failed to do so. I mean, one of the big miss, the big missed opportunities is the fact that there is no mention in the report on, on providing more supports for women on unplanned pregnancy. And when you see the abortion numbers, uh, 28,000, nearly 28,500 in the first four years, they're massive numbers. And the idea that we wouldn't say, okay, well, it's twice it's, it's twice the numbers we that were estimated going back to 2018, which we were estimating uh, a little over three and a half thousand people were traveling to England. Now we have over twice that amount. But the argument is, is that many of those women would have been getting pills online or whatever it was at that particular time. So realistically, that figure of three and a half thousand in 2018 was probably five or six thousand anyway, wasn't it? Well, if we look at the figures that we had so in 2018, which was the last year that this law came into effect on the 1st of January 2019, less than 3,000 women, because uh, the Department of Social Care in, in Britain keeps very particular records about women who travel from Ireland and it was about 2,800 even if you were to, and then if you were to allow for the uh, abortion pills um, which was one of the claims made that people were um, accessing abortion pills even if you were allowing for that you're still talking about like a 200% increase it's a, it's a huge increase mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that you know we know that the government is uh, has a particular there's a helpline called a so-called helpline called My Options um, which is supposed to give women um, all of their options when they ring that if they're on unplanned pregnancy and it really doesn't uh, it only sends women towards uh, abortion and that's been that that, that that's been proven by but, you know, but, I mean, but is it a women's rights issue because amnesty international of course who fought for the yes campaign at the time said it was a women's rights issue because of course the supreme court decided the year before that that the unborn child had no right or no rights it's this is not an. It's not fair to say it's a women's issue. We were all in our mothers' wombs. Um, you know, men have just as much right to have, a, have a, to discuss to be part of this discussion. Well, they well um, they do they do and they don't because realistically, if if a girl gets pregnant during you know I don't know the second or third date with some guy and maybe the relationship's not going to last or it could be a one night stand or whatever it happens to be, and I know that they all sound like kind of very stereotypical ways of people getting pregnant, but realistically, no matter what the guy thinks. You know, if the woman doesn't want to keep the baby, she's not going to keep the baby. That ultimately is her choice. He can't force her to keep the baby. So it is ultimately her choice, isn't it? I think everybody should, nobody should be excluded from this discussion. And I think when we go back to people who are in unplanned pregnancy, and I've come across lots of people throughout just my years involved in the pro-life movement, many women in unplanned pregnancy, no matter what the situation, are looking for some support around them. Um, and what's happening right now is that if they go to the My Options helpline, they're not getting any other, any other options. And there's been research carried out on this uh, across the world about, you know, women in unplanned pregnancy. What are the And even in Ireland, we've carried out research um, in a number of studies over the years. Um, there was a Trinity study back in the 90s now um, where it was um, asking women why they accessed abortion or why they wanted to have an abortion. 
And many women did it because of concerns around their education, around their careers. The partner had abandoned them. Their parents were suggesting it. It's not, it's not that women want abortion. And as you said earlier, abortion is a really tough thing. And it's a really tough thing for a woman to be in that situation. But what we have failed to do is provide women with mm. all of the, all of the options. And, you know, we talk about being pro-choice, but yet we don't want to give women a choice to parent or or to consider adoption. Um, and we don't... We, you know, we, we do, but I mean, comparison to, say, the 1970s, we do have a lot of supports for women who find themselves in a situation where they're a single parent or they're raising a child on their own. We do have a lot of financial support now. I mean, if we go back to the time, well, I myself was born in a mother and baby home when women had no supports whatsoever, be it from the state financially or otherwise socially. I mean, even they didn't get a societal support. People, they were shunned by society. That's not the case anymore. I mean, it's not unusual now to hear of a single mum who wants to get pregnant or wants to have a baby on her own. It's not unusual to hear of a young girl getting pregnant 19 years of age and getting support from the state financially and otherwise. So I think they do get support. But I, I, just before I go to one or two callers as well, I want to mention the 12-day wait or the 12-week uh, limit. Now, the campaigners will have us believe this is not enough time, that sometimes women may not find out they're pregnant until they're two and a half months pregnant. And even at that point, they may not be sure they have to go to a doctor. By the time that all happens, there's a possibility they could go over that 12-day period. The doctor has to sign off on that. That is a legal requirement. And if he gets it wrong, he could find himself in a lot of trouble. Of course, unless the woman's life is in danger or there are extenuating circumstances after 12 weeks. The campaigners will say, some of them have said 14 weeks to extend it to. Others have said 22 and my God, there is one or two out there who believe there should be no time limit, literally to the day before the baby is born. I find that grossly, uh, absolutely gross to think about. But anyway, the, the idea that it's going to be extended, I know you don't agree with it, obviously, because you don't even agree with the 12 weeks. But do you think it's going to be extended? Because let's be clear about this. They're making this an election issue. Any attempt to change the 12-week period would have to be brought in by legislation, because that's in the law. Um, and I think any attempt to do that would be very robustly challenged by many people, including a lot of yes voters. Um, when the abortion law came in back in 2019, I think it was the CEO, it was, the CEO of um, the British, the former CEO of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, Anne Brady, actually tweeted at the time that we had, um, you know, a more um, permissive kind of abortion law than even in England, because even in England, you have to provide... You have to have a reason, um, yes. A reason up to 12 weeks. But if, going, if you look at any extension of the 12 weeks, I mean, as you say, the question is... But they do allow abortion up to 20... In the UK, it is up to 22 weeks or 23 in extenuating circumstances. So we're not anywhere close to the UK. And realistically, I know you have to have a medical reason and people will claim a mental health reason. It's just a tick a box, to be honest with you, in the United Kingdom in relation to that. It's pretty much the same as here. But but in saying that, you know, you can go for a termination up to 22 weeks. Here, it's 12. And people are saying they're still going to the United Kingdom at 14 and 15 weeks to have a termination. Okay, but the question, Niall, is... Where does that end? Because if you talk to the people, if you ask uh, groups like the National Women's Council, who, by the way, had a, had many, many meetings with the Minister for Health while this report was underway, he, he failed to meet anybody from the pro-life side. He only met groups that were uh, pro-choice campaigning groups. But if you ask the National Women's Council, and they've said it on the record, on the radio, that they don't believe in any gestational limits. So you go, you know, what you go 14 weeks, you go 16 weeks, even, you know, when does it end? And we do already have abortion up until birth where a baby has um, life-limiting conditions or fatal fetal abnormalities. And we know from the UCC report that was published in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that sadly and extraordinarily some of those poor little babies actually survived the abortion and 
and we don't know what happened there. They were left to die, presumably. Um, but like, the reality is that where do you end? And, and if you ask any of the pro-choice campaigners, and if any of them were willing to come on your podcast today to have this discussion, you would find that they will reject any gestational limits. So at a time when a baby can be born, well, they, well, they'll argue. I, I've had them on say that before, and I've asked them that question over and over again. So what is your time limit? And they keep saying they have none. And I say, and I'll ask the question, well, then do you believe you should be able to terminate a pregnancy the day before the child is born, the day before you go into labor? And they and their argument all the time is, well, that doesn't happen. And that's well, that's their argument, that that doesn't happen. I mean, it's rare. I mean, even in states in the United States where that was allowed, it didn't happen too often. There's your answer. The reality is that the people who are... are seem to have the ear of the Minister for Health at the moment. Um, all of the groups that have been referenced in the three-year review, by the way, it's only only pro-choice groups have been referenced in, because there was a public sub submission process. Uh, all of them are, it's, it's very hard to see where any limitations, um, there's mm -hmm. no limitations there, in fact. And, you know, the other things that I do, do want to mention, one thing that's glaringly missing from the report as well, back two years ago, a number of TDs brought forward a, a bill which would mandate doctors to give um, pain relief to the unborn child prior to a late-term abortion. Um, this was to catch up with the science, which shows that babies in late-term abortion can suffer pain. So our animal welfare legislation mandates uh, us to give um, pain relief to an animal prior to ending their lives, and yet the abortion law doesn't require that uh, prior to the ending of an unborn baby's life at late term. The minister said when this legislation was brought forward a couple of years ago by Carol Nolan and some other TDs, that, you know, this was more appropriate to be considered in the context of the three-year review. And yet, in the 149-page report that the author, Marie O'Shea, has published uh, about the abortion law, there's less than three lines, I think just three lines given to the issue of pain relief, uh, where she more or less just says that she's talked to a number of doctors and there's no need for it. So there's no well, reference. They, they, well, they, they, they suggest that the central, central nervous system hasn't developed at 12 weeks and that therefore the, the unborn child at 12 weeks wouldn't feel any pain. Isn't that the suggestion? Well, Stuart other doctors Derbyshire, disagree. Yeah, I know. Stuart Derbyshire, who's an author of the the, the, the most up to date research on the issue of fetal pain, uh, says otherwise. He's pro choice ideologically, he but he he follows the science. And I think what's happening here is we're not following the science. And there are so many areas in the abortion review report. I mean, obviously, we talked about the flaw earlier, where for the purposes of the the, the, the discussion around the three day period of reflection, the author failed to look at the Department of Health. Uh, figures and instead looked at a very small sample of around 400 okay. from a pro-choice group so didn't even have the right research uh, there when 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 quoting when making such a wide sweeping recommendation like removing the three-day period of reflection as well as that in a number of places in the report um the the abortion figures are incorrect um okay and that's very troubling. well, well, I, well um, Eilish, do me a favor i want you to stay with me the science on it. Okay, I want you to say, I'm speaking to Eilish Mulroy, who's from the Pro-Life Campaign, but just to be fair, I want to bring Angela on as well. Angela, uh, you're on the Nile Boylan podcast. How are you doing, Angela? I'm fine, how are you? Uh, you've been listening to Eilish, you've heard all this, obviously, the, all the news in relation to the reviews of uh, the abortion legislation. I mean, you spoke to us before, you had an abortion many years ago yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. but do you believe that women, A, should uh, have to wait three days, and B, should the time no. limit be extended to past 12 weeks? No, I've, I think, as I've said before, um, like, women who um, have an unplanned pregnancy that, that they don't want, don't just think about this and go, right, that's it it's gone tomorrow. 
you know, like up until the past year, the travel had to be done to England. So you don't basically turn around in a day, hop on a plane and go over. It, it, it would rare, be very rare that that would happen. You'd have to wait a couple of weeks. You have to make plans. You have to make appointments. You have to make that. That's what happened to me. And I had a couple of weeks to, um, like, think about it. I made the plan. I still had to wait, wait two weeks to go over. I just think with this three-day thing, you know, this three-day waiting period, I think we're basically calling women idiots, telling them they don't know what they want. Um, I, I, I always but, we, we, but if you listen to what Eilish said, you know, the study clearly shows that there was possibly up to 3,000 women, maybe even a bit more, a bit less, depending on the figures that you look at and how many of those may have been miscarriages or, or false reports of pregnancy, that changed their mind in that three-day period. So in other words, they went for the first appointment. Doctor said, listen, come back in three days. That's the law. Have a little think about it. Talk to your friends and family, whatever the doctor would say. And they didn't come back for the second appointment. So they're babies at home right now in cots somewhere who will live the rest of their lives because those parents or that woman changed her mind. Is that not a good thing? Well, yeah, it's a good thing for, um, you know, whoever wanted that unbanned pregnancy. That, that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, it's not like you can go into the doctor anyway and say, I want it now. You see, there's going to be a waiting period anyway. Well, no, I mean, if the waiting period is removed, it'll be a case of ringing up your the receptionist your doctor's office and saying, can I have an appointment? You know, I want to have a termination. She'll ask you what it's for and you'll go in and have it done there and then. Because in most cases, it's just prescribing tablets anyway. And being monitored. But, okay. Well, I wouldn't, you see, this is the other thing to do with, um, you know, the, um, you know, how long um, you can do the, the termination. 12 up, weeks, yes. 12 weeks. And I do believe in extending it. How, how many, how many I, weeks were you pregnant when you had a termination? I was actually 15 and I didn't realise I was 15. Right, okay. I was 15 when I went over and I had the scan. You know, I mm. didn't realise I was that far gone. You know, and it, okay. it, it was just, you know, it, 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 was, it was a shock, to be honest, because as, as I said, um, you know, before it's... Um, was unplanned it was something i didn't want but i didn't think that it was that person do you understand me so what um, so well then just before i go to the next caller what what do you think the time limit should be for um 15 or 16 weeks 16 weeks 16 weeks so because kind of we're into the four month period uh, you know after the second the first the semester is, the second semester yeah because a lot of women that like women aren't totally regular. Do you know what I mean? You don't get your period and then get your period and then get your period, right? Like I was totally irregular, totally all over the place. Um, that it, it was nothing to me that you know because I actually bled through a lot of this anyway. So I didn't realize until I started feeling sick. I started feeling nauseous. I sat and I was going, "There's no way I'm pregnant," but I was, and I was bleeding. For those three and a half months. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. But by the way, in hindsight, I know it was a long time ago. Um, um, how long ago? Sorry, was it again? How long ago did was this? I just, just, just what it is, Nile. It's a really bad line. Okay. Sorry. Well, how, sorry, Angela. How long ago was it? Sorry, Angela. 
coming up to 20 years ago. Do you, and can I ask you an honest question? If it's if it's not an insulting or disrespectful question, do you have any regrets? No, no. No. Do you ever think Absolutely about it? Do you no ever kind regrets. of think on the birthday of that child that could have been born? Do Do you ever give it a thought? No. Well, I did because you know, going back then, thirteen years ago, I got ovarian cancer, so I couldn't have kids after that anyway. So you do for that, you know, for that kind reason, of, of course, of course. I'm sorry to hear for, that as well. For that reason. But I, I wouldn't sit there going, oh, I should have. Oh, you know, this is all my fault now. And this is, you know, like one person actually said to me that that was a punishment. You know, that oh, well, that, well, that, well, that, well, that's just that's just nasty. Uh, but, no, you know what I mean? Of course. Well, yeah, look, well, look we well, well, save me for a second, Angela. Before I go back to Eilish in relation to that, let me go to David Quinn from the Iona Institute. Uh, David, uh, good afternoon to you. Hi. How's it going? Uh, David, we've been talking to Eilish Mulroy about uh, Barrister Marie O'Shea's uh, report and review last week that was uh, left with the Minister uh, in relation to or to the Oireachtas, should I say, in relation to these changes. This is going to become a thorny issue again. It's going to be an election issue. Leo Varadkar has already suggested he would be uncomfortable to change the legislation so soon, but campaigners are pushing hard. Yeah, I mean, it's only, what, it's 2018 since the referendum and it's um, 2019 since it came into law. So it's not long, um, and people, you know, were assured of various things, for example, about the three-day waiting period being retained, among other things. I mean, the review very far, like one of the things it recommends is uh, total decriminalization of abortion. Uh, now, like not even Britain goes that far. So what that would mean is if a doctor performs an abortion outside the terms of the law, he or she could not be prosecuted, which means... Um, Doctor could perform but, on but, it, but is it, is it, isn't part of that review suggesting that doctors are unsure? They said this, by the way, at the very early stages, too, before the referendum and when the original legislation came in, that doctors are unsure. Now, this is what I was talking to Eilish a few minutes ago, that when mm. a doctor performs a termination, when it's extenuating circumstances outside of the 12 weeks, they're unsure. And because of that unsurety, they risk 14 years in jail. So this is why they want to remove that. Isn't that, isn't that the reason why they're suggesting removing that? Well... I mean, that's the reason they're giving, and I'm sure they're sincere about that. But decriminalising just goes for the kind of big bang approach. And as I say, Britain doesn't do that. And Britain's had abortion uh, on a very widespread basis since 1967. There are voices who want the same thing to happen there. But, you know, to use that as a reason to totally, de you know, decriminalise would be just, you know, going way too far, uh, in my view. Uh, so that's, to me, one of the most radical Okay, uh, well, what, what about what about the three-day wait period, which women and campaigners and feminists would say that you're treating women uh, reprehensibly, you're saying they're stupid, you're patronising them by saying they have to sit and wait three days when they've already made a very tough decision? Yeah, well, you see, waiting periods are actually relatively common around Europe, um, and sometimes they're up to six days. Um, and it's because, I mean, it's obviously a huge decision. I mean, it's literally a life-or-death decision. So it's not like a normal... Uh, decision, you know, when you go to see a doctor about an operation or something, uh, because a life is going to be ended. So it's a tremendously morally significant kind of moment. And if you were saying um, uh, to the lady there on the call, um, you know, uh, there's evidence that the three-day waiting period um, is sometimes leading to a change of mind and a change of heart and babies being born who otherwise wouldn't be born. And I mean, that's a pro-choice thing. I mean, even if you're pro-choice, those women have changed their minds presumably out of their own free choice. Um, so there's no violation of the principle of choice uh, if you happen to be pro-choice. And, you know, a baby is born. So it seemed to me to be a kind of win-win. 
And so the three-day waiting period would seem to be quite a small thing, you know, given what hangs in the balance and given, again, the evidence that what other women do seem to change their mind. And again, even our coach... OK, well, um, well, me, I'm Martin was quite yeah. uncomfortable last week when he was asked by Grip Media in relation to, you know, what reviews were going to take place. He seems to have a slightly different stance uh, than Leo Varadkar. And he said, well, we, we, we look at the review. Uh, we'll talk about it. We'll, we, obviously, they're going to talk about it in the Oireachtas. There will be a debate in relation to it again. So he seems a little bit less un, uh, less sure about this. Leo Varadkar seems to be uncomfortable with the idea of changes. But just getting back to Eilish, who's also with me here mm. on Zoom as well. I'm assuming both of you, because obviously with the Iona Institute and Eilish with the pro-life campaign. I'm assuming it's battle stations again, or it, it, I, can you see that Eilish happening again, the debates on radio, back to the, to the drawing board again, to try and encourage the government to leave this as is? Yes, Niall, and as I said earlier, I think, you know, one of the silver linings of the three-year review is that it's given us some opportunity to tell people about what's happening under the new law, which I think most people um, most even yes voters would be fairly shocked at, like the things like the huge abortion figures, like the fact that babies aren't given any pain relief, like the fact that babies have been born alive and left to die um, after failed abortions in late term. Um, I think that the you know we we saw um, a few thousand people out on the streets on the first of May um, from the pro life movement um, out in relation in reaction to the report, and I think that if any um, attempt is made to change the law. And which would be required uh, for, for a number of the recommendations in the review, uh, the law would have to be changed, that that would meet with a very strong opposition going through the houses of the Oireachtas. I think that um, it's really well, made... Well, we, we, uh, but we've seen more recently, Eilish, you know, with different legislation, including the freedom of speech and many other ones, uh, the children's education curriculum, etc., etc. We've seen the government completely ignore public submissions. We've seen the complete the government completely ignore debate, ignore any kind of objections. And David, you've you've had the debates probably during the week or over the last two weeks in relation to the the hate crime bill, which a lot of people object to uh, because mm. it impinges on freedom of speech. We've seen the minister of education last week pushing through with the junior cert cycle on the new curriculum or the new educational curriculum, mm. which again there was a lot of objections by certain by parents too. Uh, and but they don't seem to care, David. So I I don't know if Eilish is living in hope that they might listen. But I think you can have 10,000 people out in the street and I don't think they're going to listen. Yeah, I mean, the government itself probably won't listen. Uh, what it might listen to is TDs who are in, you know, different government TDs in marginal constituencies, particularly in rural areas, uh, if people can be woken up to, um, A, how the law has been operating, because it's probably been... Um, a lot more drastic than they anticipated, and B, you know, this, uh, you know, abortion law review is basically a wish list from protest campaigners, and again, it's probably going much further than people would have anticipated, because the original idea was to anticipate how the law is working, not to make a whole bunch of recommendations for further changes and make it even more radical than it already is. So, if you've TDs in marginal constituencies looking at it, thinking, okay, we could push it through the door, maybe, uh, but I don't want to lose my seat because it's going to come down to fine margins. And there's still a lot of pro-life voters here, and there's a lot of pro-life voters that I personally have, because I could be a Fianna Fáil or a Fine Gael TD, and I'm in a rural constituency, and I'm already under tremendous pressure. So all I have to do is lose a few hundred votes, and I lose my seat, and I don't want to do that. So that is probably the best political leverage in terms of getting the government to not uh, accept some of these recommendations. And when, uh, Eilish, when do we expect these recommendations, well, the recommendations have already been made to the government by Maria O'Shea, uh, Barrister Maria O'Shea, but when do we expect the government to make a decision on this? Because uh, when asked last week, as I said by Grip Media, um, you know, Michal Martin seemed quite cagey about responding to that. Uh, but he wouldn't say yes and he wouldn't say no. So when do you expect changes to be suggested, if they're going to be suggested by government? Well, 
Well, we understand that the um, report is it's been with the minister. Uh, I presume the minister will have his own thoughts on it. It's going to the Oireachtas Health Committee, as we're told, um, with view to then um, the Oireachtas Health Committee sending it back to the Cabinet. Ultimately, it ha a decision has to be made um, by the Cabinet. And I think there'll be a lot of uncomfortable people around the Cabinet table, uh, including senior ministers and the Taoiseach himself, um, in, indeed, from his own remarks that he made when the abortion report came mm. out originally. It's clear that he's kind of troubled around it himself personally. People like Minister Simon Coveney, who, who personally gave kind of the, 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 the voters um, the, the go-ahead to vote yes, because he was he felt there were safeguards like the three-day uh, period of reflection. It'd be very difficult for them to want to push this through as legislation. Um, and I think it would be very surprising if they did. I think the 33% of people who voted no, um, I mean, 33, 34% is a big percentage of people. I think that that is a lot of votes if people were to, to bring that to the ballot box. I think there's a lot of yes voters who would be very, very troubled because we're having these discussions now and they're finding out more about what's happening about the nearly 30,000 abortions in the first four years of the law, I think there'll be a lot of political pushback. And certainly as the pro-life campaign, we'll be encouraging our supporters mm -hmm. uh, to work with okay. the local TDs and, and put their views forward on the issue. Eilish Mulroy from the pro-life campaign. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, David Quinn from the Iron Institute. I appreciate you coming on the air. Sorry, David, if you want Thank to say you. something finally just in relation to it. Sorry, David, do you believe it's going to be an election issue? Um, I think it will be if the government insists on pushing forward. So hopefully the government will think, look, we already have um, enough things on our plate, so we're not going to push this. So I hope that's what happens. All right, listen, thank you very much to both of you. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085 100 2255. The Niall Boylan podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.